Welcome to the Maximus Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cam Sapa. As a clinical psychologist, medical school professor, and CEO, I specialize in helping men be better in mind, body, and masculinity. On this podcast, I interview extraordinary men as a clinician would, hearing their come up stories of how they became the men that they are today, and having them share their secrets of actionable advice on how to look, feel, and perform your best. Welcome to the Maximus Podcast. On today's podcast, we have entrepreneur investor Dylan Bennon. He's currently the CEO and founder of Mindbloom. Mindbloom is a mental health and well-being brand helping people achieve personal and clinical breakthroughs with at-home clinician-prescribed psychedelic psychotherapy. Uh, Dylan graduated from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania as a trustee scholar with concentrations in entrepreneurial management, decision science, and consumer psychology. He is an entrepreneur and fellow friend, uh, fired up about building technology to increase access where people need it most, including mental health care, civil justice, and local democracy. So welcome, Dylan. Thanks, Cam. I'm also fired up to jam with you today. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we always start our podcast uh, with a 45-minute segment called Making the Man in order to get uh, you know the backstory behind uh, your road to how you got to where you are today, kind of the, the making of the man. Um, so why don't we start there? I'd, I'd love for you to just give a little bit of background about um, your life. Like what, what was your upbringing like? Hmm. Uh, I grew up in a, a working class family in Southern California, Orange County. Uh, I was actually raised by my uh, adoptive stepfather, who is my hero and uh, first and, and last male role model. Uh, and uh, I had the you know incredibly happy childhood. We had this uh, big challenge in our household, uh, which is that my mother is severely mentally ill. Uh, she's struggled with psychosis, schizophrenia, addiction to a lot of substances, uh, and it um, was definitely a big part of my upbringing. Was having to grow up a, a little sooner, uh, and definitely had a lot of um, uh, second order consequences that led me to mental health and well being and psychedelic therapy. And we ultimately lost her to homelessness. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, oh, I shouldn't be sorry. I am um, a big believer that things don't happen to you. They happen for you. Mm. And for me, I saw it was really tragic for her, my friends and family. Uh, and, and the work that she was not able to do in the world is a really smart woman who was not able to contribute because of her issues. Um, but I had like the happiest childhood I could have and helped make me who I am. Um to, to that end, uh, I was just obsessed growing up with sort of getting out and um, I was no, nobody in my family was even close to having ever graduated college. And so I was just an absolute animal. I probably slept like four or five hours a night, graduated like valedictorian in my class um, and, and got a, a full scholarship to, to Penn, um, where then I was promptly let down by the modern academic and educational <laughs> system. <laughs> uh, that that's, was its own uh, a journey you know, being uh, super disillusioned and having to realize I'm gonna have to do things on my own and figure out a path forward that wasn't just sort of doing what I'm told and getting good grades and, uh, you know, achieving. Well, uh, yeah, I absolutely want to dig into that. But but first, uh, I think you have such an interesting childhood sort of growing up. Um, I want to hear a little bit about that. So uh, obviously, given the instability of kind of the situation with your mom, you mentioned your adoptive stepfather uh, kind of stepping in and playing perhaps a more stabilizing force. Can you t talk a little bit about him and how you kind of use the term first and last role model, uh, the role that he played in that sense? 
Yeah. I mean, my dad is my absolute hero. Uh, so my mom had me when she was maybe 20 years old out of wedlock. Uh, she had got shotgun married, but by the time I was born, uh, my biological father was out of the picture. So I've, I've never actually met him. Um, and I think by the time I was about one years old, my mother met my father and he was a, a mailman. He's now a city bus driver in California. Uh, and you know, my dad says that he just absolutely like fell in love with me as a baby and uh, I really like got my claws into him. Uh, so he, uh, you know, immediately adopted me. I didn't even learn that I was adopted until I was like eight years old and they, they told me. Uh, and so he's been, you know, my, my father, he was like the father and the mother figure in the household, uh, came to every single one of my football practices, was my best friend growing up. Uh, and I think he laments that he didn't have a lot like intellectually to teach me, you know, somebody who probably hasn't hadn't read a book since high school. Um, but what I learned from him in terms of uh, like character, um, how to treat other people, and he's like, you know, one of like the warmest, um, you know, most popular people that I've ever encountered, friends with every single person he meets, just like a wellspring of enthusiasm and positivity, especially as for somebody who's had, you know, a really challenging life at, at certain inflection points, uh, you know, has, has been, you know, uh, just a, a huge role model for me and for how I wanted to grow up and develop and, and develop character. Yeah. What an amazing story. Uh, and, and how fortunate to, that in the face of sort of unfortunateness that you, you were able to find him. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned kind of like, you know, maybe he didn't provide as much on the intellectual side. Um, but you know, I, I would argue like the virtues, uh, and values are, are far more important. You can always, you know, I actually think it, there's too much pressure in American society to get everything that we need from our, our one father, uh, mm -hmm. whoever that is, who's playing that role. Um, when, you know, it's a, you're, he, they're a human being, they can only provide so much. And really we should almost have like multiple fathers or role models, at least, uh, in the sense of providing those different needs. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm particularly curious, um, you know, you mentioned this drive, right? So I, I don't know if you, you would describe it as sort of a chip on your shoulder, but what, what do you think that was about in high school? Where did that kind of come from, and and how do you, how did you use that or channel that in a way that was was positive, but also like not burning you out? Because I, I think it can really be a double edged sword to to, to use that kind of a tool. Hmm. Yeah, I think there are a couple of directions to go in. So where it came from, <clears throat> I think it was a combination of just like innate curiosity, which I think all humans have as tool makers, and 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 just like a a positive reinforcement of a fixed mindset. Uh, so so growing up, I was told I was smart. Uh, I had uh, on my mother's side, you know, Jewish grandparents. I'm half Jewish, half half Irish, um, and uh, I would actually get like twenty dollars for every A that I brought in. So there's a whole ceremony, come in, count all the A's. And so I didn't get anything less than an A until like college, <laughs> when I, you know, like spiritually or functionally like dropped out. Um, and uh, I think that just instilled in me this like really fixed mindset that I'm really smart. I need to get A's. I need to achieve. I need to be valedictorian. I need to be the first in my family to go to college and go to the you know the highest prestige school that I can. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I got lucky that that never blew up in my face until I got to college. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I got to college, I did blow up my face because then I had no more goals. I didn't see the point of getting A's for the sake of getting A's in college. It didn't seem like it led me anywhere. Everyone just becomes an investment banker out of Wharton anyways. Right. Uh, and I had to go through my own journey of finding meaning, purpose, and a path, you know, when I no longer had one that was just, you know, achieving. Totally. Yeah. And I think you, you illustrate the Pygmalion effect uh, perfectly, which if for folks who are not familiar, 
you know, there's a classic education study where when you tell children uh, that they scored very well on an IQ test, even though it's totally made up, they end up doing better in terms of their academic achievement because it's belief is self-fulfilling prophecy. So, yes. so maybe one lesson is tell your kids that, uh, well, I wouldn't say unless they're smart. I, I always encourage reinforce behavior in terms of tell them that they're hardworking and that's what results in achievement. Um, Just the, the growth mindset, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think, and I think it was at the expense of like my emotional development. Like mm -hmm. I, I, uh, I had friends, I had a girlfriend, but I didn't like people. They didn't like me. <laughs> I was kind of a dick. Um, mm -hmm. and it was actually discovering positive psychology while I was at Penn, uh, which right, was right. partially the birthplace for it, where, um, where I started learning like, wait, I'm actually not happy. All the things I think I'm pursuing, like evidence-based do not make you happy. Uh, and I'm just on a path to nowhere that I'm not even enjoying. Uh, and that was actually one of the sort of drivers of trying psychedelic medicine for the first time. So, yeah, I want to I want to dig in there. It sounds like college was a, a disillusioning in a, in a good way uh, kind of period for you. Was it was it taking like the positive psych stuff with Marty Seligman or, or, or what was the catalyst for that in terms of realizing maybe the path that you're on is not going to lead you to where you actually want to go? Hmm. Uh one was, it was learning about positive psychology. It was uh, interning in investment banking in 2008 while people were like, you know, nearly jumping out of windows uh, during yeah. the financial crisis. Uh, it was, it was seeing um, people coming back, you know, after a few years of investment banking, talking about how horrible it was. And then be like, am I just going to do the thing everyone's doing? And, and I think it was partially just being like a little bit of a, uh, for better or worse, like contrarian that loves to just do the opposite of whatever people are doing, whether or not that's uh, you know thought through from first principles or not. Um, so I mean, I, I kind of meandered around. Like I ended up working in entertainment in LA, you know where I'm from, for a year out of college at a top talent agency, just getting absolutely abused. Um, then learned about tech startups from a, a fraternity brother of mine who. Um, um, helped end up buying and selling a company working at eBay and is now uh, the COO at Atomic, which is one of the biggest startup studios in the country, doing incredible work. Uh, and he you know, told me about startups and was like, I think you're a startup guy and helped me get my first startup job. Um, so I think it was a, a little bit of luck and a lot of wandering around until I sort of found you know, my Ikigai guy and, and the thing was the perfect fit for me. Amazing. Yeah. It's, it's kind of an interesting thing. I've he heard, heard that story a lot in some... Um, in people sort of being in some ways conformist in terms of following the academic path. Cause I don't know, as a kid and who's smart and you know, it's nice to get the gold stars. You're, you're going to continue doing that uh, until you, yeah, you, you face reality in terms of like, Oh, consulting, investment, banking, finance. We've had a few folks on the, on, on a, the, this show that were following certain paths like that um, myself included. I spent my summers in interning and consulting. And then you realize like, yeah, this is not how I want to spend the rest of my life. Nor, nor do the people, who work there are are often not role models uh, that you want to emulate. Speaking of which, um, so now that you you kind of like through the introduction of your friend uh, found your way to startups, tell me about that like your first startup experience uh, and what that was like for you. Oh, it was it was magical. So so I joined this startup hot list, uh, which uh -huh. was I was actually joining the embers of a dying startup and I didn't know it, uh, but it was during the social local mobile craze. Uh, hot list was a competitor to Foursquare. Uh, where we were building the biggest geosocial aggregator. So essentially, we'd, we'd log into Hotlist, we'd scrape all of your data from Facebook, and then show you some stuff that was probably a little creepy in hindsight, in terms of uh, you'd look at an event and we'd have 500 million people's data around who's going where, 
uh, you know, gender pictures of people, um, to help drive like where you might go and what you might do. Mm -hmm. Um, the company had some early success, raised a few million dollars. Um, like I said, acquired hundreds of thousands of users and hundreds of millions of people's data to provide this platform. Uh, but what made me realize that startups were the place for me was essentially got in. They're like, we have all these problems. I started being able to read a bunch of the top startup books like Lean Startup, Zero to One, uh, Startup Owner's Manual, and uh, both acquire the theory about how to build companies and how to do product and how to do marketing, but also apply it on a canvas. And so that combination of like theory and practice, uh, just the rate at which I was able to learn and the quality of people I was able to work with was just absolutely stunning to me and created this new paradigm of what work could be like and what success could be like. Um, I mean, I'd really gone through a period where I was like working in this talent agency, I worked in banking. I was like, oh, is this just what being an adult is like? Just work suck. You know, my dad, my dad doesn't like work. You know, my family doesn't like their work. I guess I'm not going to like my work either. I guess it's just, I guess uh, college was the peak. <laughs> um, um, and one of the formative moments for me at Hotlist was I was tasked with you know, implementing analytics. So mm -hmm. implementing tools to understand how our users were actually behaving in the product, uh, as well as getting qualitative data about what people were actually saying and doing. So I set up uh, a lot of user tests on the site usertesting.com to interview people who are using our product and actually watch them use our product and see like where they click and what they do. Through looking at that data and then watching those users, I started realizing that nobody actually used our product or liked it. <laughs> so, so one day we have about 30 people in the office and we're in New York City, Manhattan, and the product is for nightlife and social life. And so this sh we should all be in the target demo for our own product. I look around, I raise my hand, I'm like, is, is anybody here using our product? Everyone looks around, it's like, no. Is anyone here not? Is there here know anybody that's using our product? And the only person was my my now wife, who's our head of engineering at MindBloom. She was a, a fanatic of it, um, and so realized we had been spending all this time doing all these things to acquire users and build features and do press. When after years, the company hadn't really figured out how to build something that even anyone at the company wanted. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, after that, the next few companies I've built were all things that. Um, either me at the time or, you know, me as somebody who grew up working class could really understand it's something that I really would want, something that I wish existed in the world for me. And, and that's been a good North Star for me in terms of building companies and building products. It's easier okay. to, you know. Yeah, I, I really think there's two ways of doing it in terms of startup. Either you have to have in incredibly deep empathy of your target user, which especially in like healthcare, you know, you got to go talk to patients and get into their lives, go into their homes. Uh, and really do like good, you know, on the ground user research or yeah, build something for yourself. If you know you're the target demographic and you're very similar uh, to it, um, that that's absolutely a path. And a lot of great companies, even restaurants I know who have, have literally done that. They're like, I, I cook food that I like to eat and it works out quite well. Um, and, and I think your point earlier about sort of the, you know, the pace of startups is a good one. Um, and, and that it's a different paradigm for work. I had a very similar experience kind of coming out of working for government run hospitals and, you know, the, the, this, the pace and the bureaucracy, I was just like, Oh, I guess this is real life. Like this is what happens when you work nine to five and, and this is how the government operates and, you know, going to a startup and seeing the speed at which, uh, um, work could be right. And the, the, the freedom and flexibility and boundaries, I think for people who are, 
maybe higher in openness to experience, maybe a little lower in agreeableness. <laughs> it's a better fit for for folks who, you know, they just, maybe they're just like more impatient and, and the world needs to find ways of channeling that in a positive direction. Yeah. The nine to five is such an interesting um, sort of dichotomy between people who work to live and then people who their work is a, they're trying to make their work a deep sense of meaning and fulfillment and, and personal development. I remember developing this this hypothesis when I worked at the talent agency. They're like, oh, I guess only about 20% of people actually care about their job because there'd be so many instances where you're trying to get something from somebody uh, and they just don't care and they're just not cooperative, not, you know, and they're not doing their jobs. Um, and then when you get into an environment where, you know, near 100% people, of people like deeply care about doing the best work of their lives, the the energy and is, you know, it's it's addictive. Totally. Like um, I'm particularly like, curious like for someone who, <laughs> yes, well, speaking of addiction, I'm, I'm particularly curious um, as someone who helped build kind of a social network, uh, if, you, if you want to call it that, a hot list. Uh, what's, what's, your, what's your take on sort of social media, social networks in terms of what it's, what it's evolved into? And I'm, I'm particularly curious, too, because the whole solo mo trend kind of died out. And it, and it was kind of unfortunate because I think there was a lot of promise there, right, where you could take this geolocated data, you know, have people meet their friends when they're nearby, direct people to to actually have like meaningful interactions. And even though the technology and bandwidth is now there, it, it sort of hasn't happened. So I'm kind of curious your your take on all that. I'm guessing we haven't spoken about this yet. Um, uh, I One of the few things I've maybe have been into before was cool was not using social media or my phone. Uh, so I've had for like 10 years, I haven't had any social media. If you go to my Twitter, there's one tweet says, in an effort to deliberately ration my attention, I'm not on Twitter. Uh, I don't have Instagram, don't use Facebook. I've had my phone in black and white for, I don't know, 10 years. I have a cheap Android, which is to everybody I know chagrin. They hate it. But it helps remind me that my phone's a tool. Um, I only have one page of apps and they're all just utility apps. Uh, I don't even have email on my phone. Uh, and I have... A, Block site, which is an application that blocks websites to block. It's only like six sites, but all the ones I might compulsively go to, uh, including my email. So I'm really intentional about using that. The line I used to give when people asked me, like, well, you work in social media. How do you not have social media? Is uh, I, don't, I don't get high off my own supply. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, we, I don't, I think um, one of the biggest themes of uh, this time period is going to be how we grapple with modernity. Mm -hmm. like we have ancient brains and bodies that probably haven't really evolved in 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 years. Uh, and we've been ported over into this world that like, with any perspective is utopia. Like we largely eradicated a lot of disease. We have an abundance of food, clean water, climate control. Um, I mean, unlimited entertainment. Uh, we have the most wealth and freedom that's ever existed in all of human history. But we have skyrocketing mental health care issues. Like suicide, second leading cause of death for people under 35, fourth for people under 55, uh, addiction skyrocketing. And that's just like drug addiction. We're not even talking about addictions that aren't really measured that well, like social media addiction, porn addiction, video game addiction, uh, these other things that hijack your dopamine reward system. And there's really no way back, only through. Like we're not gonna all return to some agrarian society. Uh, so I think that's 
going to be one of the um, sort of biggest challenges in movements over the next 10 or 20 years is figuring out how to interweave, you know, our ancient biology and minds with living in a modern world in a healthy way. I love how you, even as someone who worked in the field, you, you realize it's important not to get high in your own supply because uh, it's true. I, you know, I think uh, social media is uh, probably the biggest boon and, and worst boon to, to modern civilization as there is. But unfortunately, I think uh, because of the you know incentive model to keep their eyeballs on the screens, it, it is designed to be addictive. And I, though I think it's actually very smart that you you sounds like you essentially use a form of dopamine fasting in terms of uh, you know just limiting uh, your use as much as possible. So I think that's something for our listeners to definitely uh, you know pay attention to. You can definitely work in tech, but not be used by tech, uh, as Prince uh, once uh, you know uh, wisely said. So um, I, I think that's that's a, that's kind of a brilliant insight. Um, I'm particularly go ahead. Put your, put your phone in black and white for a week, and then turn in color and compare it to a Vegas slot machine. Tell me if you can tell the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Right, it's designed uh, to 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 trigger uh, you know those those stimuli. Um, so I'm I'm curious in in your kind of path to finding meaning, as you alluded to, uh, how you kind of ended up in in politics and then in healthcare. Hmm. Uh, leaving. Voters friend. Actually, before after I left, or sorry, after I left Hotlist, I actually very briefly uh, started a co-founded a a three D printing wind turbine company. Uh, so one of the lead engineers at Hotlist is uh, a, a mad scientist in the best uh, most positive way possible, and he had built a three D printer called a RepRap that prints other three D printers. He was also uh, just crazy enough to handle rare earth metals. Uh, so these incredibly strong magnets that uh, can chop your hand off, uh, but that you need to use in a wind turbine. Uh, so he had the idea that we would build a 3D printing company that could 3D print two things, other 3D printers and wind turbines to build clean energy. Uh, but that, that fell through when he um, moved to the other side of the world. <laughs> um, after that, I uh, started Voters Friend uh, after meeting my co-founder, Dan McLean, who also works in healthcare now at a company called Candid, where he's leaving uh, growth products that do direct consumer Invisalign. That's right. Uh, and Dan had already started working on Voter's Friend. Uh, and when he told me about it, I just became enamored with the idea because I felt like the exact same problem that he was trying to solve, uh, which is despite, at least at the time, about 10 years ago, eight years ago, however much time you spend researching ahead of an election, you're going to walk in, get your ballot and not recognize more than 15% of the candidates. Um, and to me, that just seems so obscenely archaic, that problem. Like we have the internet, we have access to uh, boundless amounts of information, right? Like every year, like the amount of information available in the world is more than like doubling. Right, it's this massive information explosion that you know, is causing some of those issues we just talked about with information overload and analysis right. paralysis. Uh, so, why the hell can't you see who you can possibly vote for and anything about them ahead of time? Mm. Um, so, we built this two-sided platform that would help voters become an informed voter in just ten minutes by entering their zip code and for the first time seeing every single candidate with you know robust amount of information about them, uh, and then allow people to come on fill up sample ballots, you know, get election tools, and then connect with those candidates, especially at the local level where people didn't have any sort of platform or voice to connect with voters. Um, so we were really successful in 
uh, signing up. I think it was like 30% of all the candidates in the country. And we had profiles for nearly all of them. Uh, it was, we used a system of scrapers and business process outsourcing and, and tech uh, on the back end, and then a consumer-facing platform that was really easy to use and pretty on the front end. Uh, and ultimately, the company was acquired by a company called Democracy that was building the big LinkedIn for politics for 10 years, um, which just recently went under and that incredible domain name was bought by Mark Cuban. <laughs> <laughs> Smart. Yeah, and it's such a great example of like augmented intelligence, right? Where instead of looking at this ballot, and I, I've certainly been in that position of not recognizing everyone, that why not use technology to, you know, uh, not rely on whether it's people's memory or ignorance, quite frankly, to to make informed decisions. Well, there was this really visceral stat at the time that we rallied behind, which was that something like forty percent of politicians who are indicted get reelected. Jeez, yeah, it's unbelievable. No, no. Yeah, the incumbents have the advantage. They have like the funding and they have the name recognition. Uh, and so like think about how much we might be able to affect the entire political system by helping people bottoms up elect better leaders at the local level who might go on to the county, state, and national level. Um, and maybe someone in college became quite disillusioned quickly when I went out and spoke to, you know, a thousand political candidates and learned that they were never going to move up to higher levels of politics. Uh, and that a lot of them were just kind of egomaniacs who wanted their faces on yard signs, <laughs> like lawn, lawn signs. Yeah. Um, um, so that's, yeah, I think that that's, that's been an interesting theme, at least for me in building is you have these like surface level hypotheses, uh, but the world is a lot more complex and rich than you think. And so as you start learning, going deep and double clicking into things, uh, you often find that, uh, you know, uh, things aren't as you seem or the job's not as you seem. Totally. You know, it sounds like that was your, your second or, or subsequent disillusionment uh, from education and then a little bit into politics. Uh, and I will tell you, as a healthcare practitioner, certainly getting into healthcare will be dis <laughs> disillusioning, at least on the system, the system side of things, uh, given, unfortunately, how broken uh, at least American health care is. Um, so it uh, sounds like you're a little bit of a glutton for punishment uh, getting into <laughs> healthcare. Wasn't it, isn't it just interesting that that's how people choose their vocations as in they don't really choose them? Like if you become a veterinarian, you do it because you love animals, but it turns out you're going to put animals down all day. If, if you become a lawyer, you do it because you watch some court shows of the prestige and it turns out you're going to like do paperwork and bill a million hours. Mm -hmm. Like the actual truth is so far from the perception of the truth. Um, and there, you know, there are ways to help people like learn about these things, but I just feel like we're stuck in this static system where we're not doing that. And so like, we'll like throw you in a four year university, tell you to like pick your major and then pick a job. And then, oh, in a few years, you'll learn that you're not suited to it. And if we didn't help you pick what you're suited to, and we didn't, we didn't help you understand what the labor market actually looked like and is going to look like. Right. It's, right. it's, it's crazy. Totally. I mean, that was my experience being a psychologist at the VA. There's, there's, a, I think the majority of patients are there for good reasons, but the incentives are misaligned in the sense that, uh, you know, part of the reason that you can, uh, you can get literally mon monetarily compensated is to have a service connected disability. And so the system sets up the incentives for patients to, uh, whether lie or exaggerate, but basically uh, you, you, to stay sick, essentially, because the checks keep coming if you do. And so you, obviously most people try to become doctors in order to help people become better. But then you're in a system that's like they're incentivized to not get better because they're afraid of getting financially cut off, even if they want to get better. So talk about bizarre <laughs> perverse incentives once you realize 
the reality of that. Do you so? Do you think that we're going to see a transition to this sort of a, a, a idealized value based care model where people are paid based on the outcomes that they get clients or get patients, um, not just providing services? Or do you think we're just going to see a disintermediation of the system where everything just moves increasingly cash pay um, and this healthcare system just gets really, really efficient with companies like uh, Hims and Mindbloom just providing cash pay services that people can actually afford um, and just getting rid of the all the glut in the system that exists today? Yeah, I think it's going to be both. Um, I, I do think there's a push towards value-based care. So, I mean, the healthcare system will, will still have to exist, right? Because I think a lot of people, uh, are, there isn't an expectation to pay out of pocket. Um, and so, you know, obviously trying to make that work in a way that isn't insane, right? There, there's all these posts recently about, um, you know, due to new legislation being passed, like hospitals are like, for instance, like Stanford are required to um, disclose how much they charge for certain procedures. So people have been going on the website and they're like, you know, if you tap your knee or, or get a Band-Aid or an aspirin, they get charged like $30,000, some absurd amount, right? Yeah. Uh, because obviously when you bill insurance, you're in, <laughs> your incentive as a hospital is to charge as much as possible. Uh, even if it gets negotiated down, you're going to walk away with, let's say, 15000 of that. So um, I think the move towards value-based care fixes that, that perverse incentive. But I, I think for certain stuff that um, whether it's essentially cosmetic or on the cutting edge, I, I do think... You're going to see the rise of obviously these telemedicine companies, including the one that you're involved with, um, where it just takes a long time for mainstream medicine to catch up with, um, you know, newer models, newer, newer forms of care that may be on the cutting edge of clinical practice. You, I, I always think really private practice is really where the cutting edge lies. Individual practitioners who, uh, you know, uh, operating at the highest end of their licenses, they take the latest in clinical research or maybe they're even pioneering it but they're not limited by what insurance can reimburse them. And people are willing to pay because they're like, look, I want the latest and greatest, not, you know, whatever it ends up being in the guidelines of the American, whatever society uh, of your specialty of interest is, is honestly like 10, 10 years behind. Cause then it's a consensus of old doctors who are like, okay, are there now multiple hundreds of studies that have now validated this, um, which is an important and probably conservative way of practicing medicine. If you're talking about guidelines for a nation, but I think there's a lot of people who are like, no, I, I, I want the best that's out there, not the best that was there 10, 20 years ago. Speaking of what's on the cutting edge, I mean, you're, you're uniquely suited to answer this as someone who's in a tech startup CEO and uh, a behavioral healthcare expert. Um, psychedelic neurotechnologies and their applications aside, uh, what, what else do you think is the emerging technologies or treatments around mental health and well-being? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I have a couple hypotheses around this. One, I think um, uh, there was such a radical shift if you look at the evolution of um, psychiatry. You know, it went from the 1960s, uh, multiple sessions a week of psychoanalytic psychotherapy, very deep, long-term work. And then it got radically kind of medicalized and saying, psychiatrists essentially don't do psychotherapy anymore outside of private practice. I, and I train them, right? Um because they're incentivized, they get paid a lot more to be pharmacologists. So they, they essentially completely switched over from psycho, like psychotherapy to psychopharmacology. Um, part of that was obviously incentivized by the, the advent of SSRIs that for the first time, like there's relatively safe psychiatric medications with uh, less side effects, at least compared to some of the previous generation of stuff. 
Um, but the problem was you have, they, they kind of pushed these single neurotransmitter hypotheses of mental illness. Depression is caused by serotonin imbalance, right? Schizophrenia is caused by dopamine, uh, which is a stupidly simple and reductionistic model. It also doesn't work particularly well because the meta-analyses came out and showed that, well, it actually doesn't really work better than placebo, uh, like SSRIs for anything but severe depression. So I, I think there's going to be a, a, an evolution to, uh, away from these neurotransmitter focused models. And psychedelics are actually an interesting example where some of them work are, are very targeted. Others like LSD actually work on many different neurotransmitters. And then we're not even sure the effects are really because of like direct neurotransmitter agonism. It, it, it may be because of a psycho social spiritual experience that that it can't be reductionistic. Um, so one field I'm, I'm obviously I'm biased, but I, I, I think like a hormonal approach to mental health, I think is really interesting. It's called like neuroendocrinology. Um, and we haven't sort of thought about addressing mental health that way. Like do, when you improve people's testosterone levels, their mood improves. Um, but it's not sort of directly, uh, it doesn't work in directly through neurotransmitters that way. So I think there's going to be emerging fields of research on, on that. Two, I'm obviously a big fan of digital therapeutics because I helped pioneer that field automata in the sense that I, I do think using sort of software, using online social support, using communities uh, is going to be tremendously beneficial. Um, for folks in terms of increasing access to care. Because I mean, while I'm a huge fan of psychotherapy and 80% of people benefit from therapy, it's also cost prohibitive for a lot of folks. And unfortunately, we don't reimburse it as much as we should. Um, and so I do think there's going to be alternative models that are going to be larger, more open source or lower cost um, that will at least provide, uh, you know, decent care for people who are on the milder spectrum of things. Um, so I'm also bullish on, on obviously like the online technology. And third, I think there's going to be kind of non-conventional new treatment modalities that are that don't look anything like pharmacology or therapy, right? I actually like um, was in a publication a few years ago talking about how maybe the next great mental health app is going to look like Pokemon Go, right? Like maybe it'll be a game uh, and, you know, uh, the game will get people to go walk outside more and that's behavioral activation. And, it, and maybe they're not even thinking about or treating it as mental health. Um, so I think there's a lot of new paradigms, um, and I think it, it requires us to, to literally think outside the box in terms of our current treatment options. Are you familiar with Achille Labs, Adam Gazelli's uh, right, company? Right. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Yeah. Like, did, like video games as digital therapeutics to help with you know ADD to build focus. And I mean, I was addicted to video games as a kid, and I think it built some really high quality problem solving skills and pathways. Um, I don't know if I would recommend anybody's child play as much as I did, but <laughs> I think there were some downstream uh, positive benefits to my like, neurodevelopment. For sure. For sure. So you, you mentioned psychedelics. And uh, so tell me about how you got started on that journey. Um, was it kind of a personal experience that you had that sort of opened your eyes up to sort of the, the potential benefits and transformations? Hmm. I had a really close friend who really pushed me to try MDMA. 12 plus years ago. And at the time I was very against it because I grew up with an addict in my home. Mm, that's uh, right, that's right. Growing up with an addict in your home is scary. <laughs> uh, it's like turbulent, there are strange people in your home at strange times, people disappearing. Uh, and so I was horrified at the idea of trying a, an illegal you know, narcotic, uh, even though, or illegal drug, uh, even though uh, you know, I was drinking you know, four nights a week in college. Um, uh, but once I started studying positive psychology and sort of developing this vague uh, hypothesis that I was not happy and that I 
all the things I was looking for happiness in were wrong and that my relationships, both with like people, individuals I knew and other people mm-hmm. were off, that I was harboring a lot of anger um, that I, I was coming to realize. I, at that point, just thought something needed to change. And mm. you know, the person who had pushed me had said this was going to be good for me. And I said, okay, let's try it. Uh, my, my first experience with MDMA, I mean, it, you know, it's a trope, but it literally changed my life. Uh, it fundamentally changed how I related to others in the world. Whereas before I had my tribe, my friends, I'm still really close friends with, you know, uh, you know, girlfriends, I didn't like other people and I didn't like humanity and I was like going to get mine. Um, and when I did MDMA, it immediately helped me connect with strangers, with individuals. It like blew up in my heart where I felt this empathogenic connection with other people uh, and catalyzed, you know, a series of developments for me into being somebody who wanted to not just grow myself, but help to connect with other people and to give back and to contribute. Um, which is to me the most fulfilling thing that I've ever discovered is the feeling of, uh, you know, contributing, whether that's helping somebody on my team grow, be nice to a stranger, uh, like, you know, a waiter or bus driver, or, um, you know, making some, you know, big maximum global contribution, like building a tech technology or company that can help millions of people. Uh, Throughout the last 12 plus years, I've you know, built a few companies uh, and used psychedelic medicine and therapy for my own emotional and psychological development. And you know, a lot of other things have gone into it and they don't just change me overnight. They're like tools and catalysts, um, but I you know, wouldn't be who I am without them. And maybe more importantly, I wouldn't be who I am for other people without them. Like they've made me better people for my friends, for my family, and for like the work I'm doing in the world. That's why our, yeah, our, big, our big mission statement at Mindbloom is to transform lives, to transform the world for that reason. Like I saw how psychedelics made me a better people for others. And I saw how my mother's mental illness didn't just hurt her, but it affected our friend's family and like what she could have done in the world that she didn't. Totally. You know, and I, I think your your experience and testimonial is all the more compelling because especially coming from your, how you describe yourself kind of pre-psychedelics is almost like misanthropic, right? And it, it sounds like it almost like opened your heart in a lot of ways. Um, I, I love that you use the word empathogenic. It, that's actually how I describe it to you know people when they ask me about it, it that it's an empathogen, meaning it induces empathy, mm-hmm. um, which is in a lot of um, ways, you know, one of the fundamental uh, goals of psychotherapy uh, is to increase people's uh, empathy and understanding. As a quick uh, aside for our viewers, um, you know, unfortunately, I think MDMA, uh, aka ecstasy, Molly, you might know by those names, has, has become associated as very much a party drug uh, because it, it kind of delved into the recreational side of things. The, the, the backstory that a lot of people don't know, and it's worth telling, is that it was synthesized by Alexander Shulgin at Berkeley. And there was actually a psychologist named Leo Zeff who was retiring. Uh, it was a couples therapist, in fact, um, who uh, Shulgin introduced it to. And he immediately recognized the empathogenic qualities. And he's like, this would be fantastic for couples who are fighting and you know having conflict. And if they can just open their hearts up to one another, as you were saying, this could be tremendously beneficial for them. And so instead of retiring, he literally became like the Johnny Appleseed of MDMA uh, went around the country doing couple, like underground because it was uh, unfortunately um, 
it, it went from being a very promising research, um, you know, drug, and then it was banned in the 1980s, I believe, as Schedule One, meaning no no medicinal purpose whatsoever, which was a terrible, I think, tragedy and mistake that we're now undoing. Uh, but so he had to go underground uh, illegally and like train couples therapists and how to use it, hold workshops. Then he'd do this for people anonymously. They even wrote a whole book about him called The Secret Chief. And that was his pseudonym. Um, and then and when he died posthumously, they, they literally updated the book called The Secret Chief Revealed, talking about who he was and the work that he did. Um, and unfortunately, that that kind of got that got brushed uh, uh, under the rug with the whole, you know, rave movement and, and sort of the recreational use. But it's really good to see it, especially thanks to MAPS and other organizations come back to the forefront. Because I, I do think, especially with conditions like PTSD, the clinical trials for MDMA, are particularly promising with veterans, and I, I do hope Stunning. that it gets approved.